uh, halacha has a, a, a funny distinction between abortion under the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach and abortion under the Torah. The Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach are the chiyuvim of non-Jews. Non-Jews have to keep the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. And by the way, you know what the Rambam says? A non-Jew who keeps the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach goes to Olam Haba too. Olam Haba is not just for Jewish people. Even a non-Jew can go to Olam Haba if he keeps the seven mitzvahs. Uh, now, the Rambam does have a big qualification, though. The Rambam says that in order for a non-Jew to get Olam Haba because he keeps the seven mitzvahs, he has to keep the seven mitzvahs because he believes they came from Hashem. Now, that's interesting. Most people, even if they're atheists, they're not going to steal, they're not going to kill. So they wind up keeping a lot of the mitzvahs. But the Rambam says that doesn't count for Eilam Haba because they're not doing it because they believe Hashem gave it. They're doing it because it's common sense or, or whatever. So it's not so easy as you might think. Uh, the Rambam's law that righteous, these are called chasidei umosa olam, that means righteous Gentiles. Righteous Gentiles who keep the seven mitzvahs get Olam Haba only when they do so because it was a commandment of Hashem. As, as you remember, uh, one of the Rebbe's Mifsa'im uh, projects uh, was that uh, to teach the non-Jewish world about the Sheva Mitzvah Sminei Noach. This is an important distinction because on one hand, for sure, we don't encourage people to become Jewish. We don't proselytize. I don't go over to a guy and say, hey, can I convince you to become Jewish? That has to be their decision. And we're not allowed to proselytize. And indeed, when a non-Jew comes to convert, we're supposed to discourage them initially. We're supposed to say, yeah, why do you want to be Jewish? You can have a cheeseburger, you can have uh, oysters, whatever it is. In other words, you tell Jew people hate Jews, right? <laughs> so we're supposed to discourage them, but once, if they persist, then we, we welcome them, we take care of them, etc. So non-Jews. even, say again, didn't you? Non-Jews can get, <clears throat> can get on my That's what I'm saying. Uh, but if a non-Jew keeps the seven mitzvahs of Noach because they believe Hashem commanded it, not because of common sense, then right. they get Olam Haba. That's I right. Just, yeah, I just don't know how, I just didn't hear much about non-Jews getting Olam Haba. Like, no, the Rambam says it specifically, yeah. that a non-Jew who keeps the seven mitzvahs gets Olam Haba. This is called Chasidei Umosa Olam, the pious of the nations of the world. Yeah. So why is it better to anyone do that? Ah, so that's a good question. Somebody asked me that question literally this morning. He said, mm-hmm. so why be Jewish at all? I can get Olam Haba by just keeping seven things. So why do I need to do 613 things to get Olam Haba? Well, you have to once, once you're born to do that. No, 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 once you're born. Why would anybody convert? Right? Why, why would I choose? I mean, right. well, listen, the short answer is that Olam Haba itself has many, many, many levels. So the level of the non-Jew is not the same level as the Jew. That's one thing. A deeper reason, which is a deeper reason, is that if I'm living my life to bring pleasure to Hashem, not because of me, all right, so, yeah, so maybe I can get the Olam Haba, you know, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I can get the same thing as a guy, even if that's true. But I want to serve Hashem in a deeper level, right? So if I'm really motivated to serve Hashem, I want to do so at the highest possible level. But this is an important rule that people don't realize. Even though we don't try to teach non-Jews to become Jews, we don't do that. But we are supposed to teach them about the seven commandments of Noah. We are supposed to teach them about the seven laws of Noah. And that's not proselytization. I'm not trying to make them Jewish. I'm trying to make them Noah. These are called Noahites. 
well, that's an English word, but that, that's the modern term that we use. Gentiles who keep the seven commandments of Noah are called Noahide people. And if you Google, Google Noahide, you'll actually see websites uh, and, and, and the like, which teach the seven mitzvahs of Noah. So most rabbis, very few rabbis are involved in this. I mean, I'm not involved in it myself, but the Rebbe, <laughs> essentially, you talk about someone who, you know, I would say, I don't have time, I'll leave it to the Rebbe, you know, I mean, <laughs> the fact that the Rebbe gets involved in spite of the fact that he was involved in every other possible thing just shows you that, uh, you know, nobody has an excuse, I, didn't, I don't have time. But one of his projects was uh, to teach the seven mitzvahs b'nei Noach. Again, I, I'm not going to say it's the highest priority of the shluchim, but it, it's one of the priorities of the shluchim. And uh, Chabad has done a number of things. But I just want to point out, it's not just a Chabad thing. This is based on the Rambam. The Rambam says that the Jewish people have an obligation to spread the seven commandments of Noach in uh, society at large. I'm sorry, did you want to say, you said something? You said, yeah. What, what were some of the projects that the Rebbe did? I mean, generally, or about, no, about the... I, I'm not sure. Well, well, what he did was that, uh, I mean, you know, Chabad put out uh, cards and posters about the seven mitzvahs of Noah. They, they occasionally have uh, symposiums uh, for non-Jews to talk about the seven commandments of Noah. They work with Noahide organizations. See, you have to understand, a lot of the Noahide organizations are non-Jews. I mean, after all, that, that's what they are. In fact, I have a friend. He's a rabbi of a shul on Shabbos. He's a rabbi of a shul on Shabbos. And on Sunday, he goes to the Goyim. Not, not God forbid, a church. He, he runs a Noahide service to pray to Hashem on Sunday. As he helps the non-Jews serve Hashem. What do they do no, they probably say Tehillim, things like that. I mean, there's no sitter for them. You know, you, you just make up things. But, you know, they would say Tehillim, songs of praise. Uh, you, like you'd write a prayer in English. Please, God, you know, give me a good day. Strengthen us. Cure the sick. Th these are legitimate prayers. And non-Jews are also supposed to pray to Hashem because they're supposed to believe in Hashem. Now, some things non-Jews are not supposed to do. They're not supposed to keep Shabbos because Shabbos is only given to the Jewish people. But a non-Jew should pray a non-Jew should, uh, you know, uh, well, obviously the seven commandments of Noah themselves and the like. So the point I'm making is, and the point that the Rebbe was making with his mitzah, is that we do have an obligation to even reach out to non-Jews in that way. Now, going back to abortion, what is a little curious is that the Ben-Noach law of abortion is different than the Torah law of abortion. The Ben-Noach law of abortion is that if a non-Jew aborts a baby, the non-Jew is chay of misa. It's a capital crime for which they get the death penalty. If a Jew performs an abortion, by the way, performs, not receiving the, 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 the chiyav is on the one who does the abortion, not, not the woman that gets it. If a Jewish person performs an abortion, it's an avera, it is a sin, but it's not considered murder. The Jew, uh, when, at the time of the Beis HaMikdash, when we had capital punishment, a Jew could not be executed for killing a, an unborn baby. A non-Jew could, in fact, be executed for killing a non-born baby. So it's a little strange that uh, the, the, the severity of abortion is greater for non-Jews than it is for Jews. But the common denominator is it is forbidden both for Jews and non-Jews. It is an Avera, although the punishment may be, may be a little different. Now, we talked about the heterim. When would abortion be 
permitted. Again, I'm reviewing a little bit. So, one heter is, this is a machlokas, be sure you know it's a machlokas, not for sure, if the embryo is less than 40 days old. This is called pachos mimem yom, and it's based on the idea that the Talmud says an embryo less than 40 days from conception is considered to be mere water. It's not yet developed enough to be given the status of a human being. Now, I want to point out that this is a machlokas. Don't, don't quote me or quote anybody as saying, for sure it's mutter. But all I'm saying is that there are opinions that allow it, pachos mimem yom, and in practical terms, that would validate what is called the morning after pill. Right, the morning after pill, if a woman had sexual uh, intercourse, whether it was rape or voluntary, and uh, maybe she got pregnant, she's not sure, so the morning after pill is not a birth control, it's not a contraception that prevents conception, but rather it prevents implantation of a fertilized egg on the uterine wall, and technically that is abortion, it's early abortion, because there's already a, a fertilization, but if you your abortion less than 40 days, so the morning after pill would be the morning after pill, and therefore it would be mutter. Again, I'm not giving you a psak. If anyone, God forbid, hopefully he'll never have such a question. If anyone has a question, you do have to talk to a rub about it uh, because everything depends on the individual facts. But that's one hedger. Yeah? I just wanted to ask if, this, if somebody is on the opinion that it's 40 days, yeah. Yeah. water, yeah. does that justify any or there is still like a case of rape or anything? Okay, so, no, so, so this is where the compromise comes in. The opinions that say less than 40 days is water, they would allow abortion for any reason. The other opinion would not allow it for any reason. The halacha is kind of a compromise position, meaning the halacha is like e neither opinion, but it's kind of in the middle, as you're suggesting, in which we would not allow it for any reason, but for rape and incest, we might be lenient if it's less than 40 days. But you understand, that's in the nature of a compromise between two extremities. You often find that in halacha, that there's a strict opinion and there's a lenient opinion, and we'll paskin in the middle where we'll be strict if the circumstances are not so serious and we'll be lenient if the circumstances are more serious, right? That's kind of the compromise. Yeah. Uh, on the what? Um, yes. Yeah. Um, so let's imagine that like there's somebody, a Jew, who started following Jesus because they believe Jesus to be Mashiach. Yeah. So many, yeah. many generations later, his family is Christian, but technically they're actually Jewish. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah. Olam Haba, where, where did that come from? That is a real, real tough question. And the reason is, unless... Well, possibly they're not Jewish anymore because they married a non-Jewish woman. But, but if you're assuming... Okay, all women. Yeah, yeah. If you're assuming that they're Jewish, this is a very serious problem because the rule that a non-Jew who keeps the Noahide laws goes to Olam Abba is only if they're a non-Jew who keeps the Noahide laws. If they're a Jew, the requirements might be higher. So in reality, uh, in, a, in a literal way, they would not have Olam Abba. But, you know, we have things in Judaism that give them a second chance, such as reincarnation, right. Yogo. So if a person did not merit the world to come in this life, the Arizal teaches they will come back in other lives and they will have a chance. So everybody will have a chance 
but it may be that they don't get a chance based on that. They're going to have to have another, another experience. That's called Gilgal. And uh, Gilgal is from Kabbalah. It's not in the Gemara. The Gemara doesn't mention Gilgal. And the Chumash doesn't mention it for sure. And even the Gemara does not mention it. But it comes really from the Arizal of Rav Chaim Vital. Uh, in fact, at Chabad.org, you can even get a translation of Rav Chaim Vital's book on reincarnation, which is Shar HaGilgulim. So you can read about it. It's a Kabbalistic book. It's not an easy book. But, uh, but the basic doctrine is, is, a, is a fairly clear, clear idea. Okay. Kabbalah doesn't seem to be something that's like clear or practical. Well, uh, I mean, the truth of the matter is Kabbalah is not intended to be practical. It's intended to give you uh, deeper understandings of the significance of what you're doing. Uh, so, for example, if I learn the Torah simply, so I, so I read, if I do mitzvahs, God will give me reward. If I don't do mitzvahs, God will punish me. Kabbalah says... It's a much bigger deal. What you do changes the world. It affects the world, not just the world, the universe. In other words, it gives a person a different sense of what are mitzvahs, what are averes. Now, not everybody needs Kabbalah. That's an interesting thing. I mean, some people have a relationship to Because people ask the question, well, a lot of Kabbalah was not revealed until later times. There were earlier generations that didn't necessarily have all the secrets of the Arizal. But one of the answers is, that because of their emuna and because of their kedusha, they didn't need to understand all of these secret things. They had a relationship to Hashem directly. So I don't know how Hashem works, okay? I don't have to know how Hashem works. But this is a paradox. As we get further from Hashem, we need like deeper explanations of how things work because that's what connects us. Do you actually see that? This is an interesting point. Sometimes having to come on to deeper things is a result of being further from Hashem. In fact, that's exactly what, what the Alter Rebbe was doing. In other words, uh, he saw the generation that was far from Hashem, so they needed more Kabbalistic, more deeper explanations. Earlier generations didn't need it, not because they were less advanced than we are, it's because they were greater than us. Right? So uh, a simple level of connecting to Hashem can actually be a higher level, but as you get further from it, you need to get more deep and more complicated. So I would say that the purpose of Kabbalah is not so much to be practical, but to make us realize the significance and the chashivas of our avayda. And that, in turn, can inspire a person uh, in, a lot, in a lot of ways. So because, the people who did yeah. their, who, who were like, the people who were on a higher level before chassidus was revealed, yeah. and they didn't need chassidus, does that yeah. mean they like, already knew... So, no, no, so, so I'm saying a little differently. Some people will understand, oh, they knew it already. Yeah. I'm saying a little different. I'm saying they didn't know it in a conscious way, but they didn't need to know it because their sense of connection to Hashem was so strong, they didn't need every explanation to make it clear to them. Just like uh, a child doesn't have to understand everything about his mother to love his mother. Right? Uh, so what happened as the generations got weaker is they needed a more powerful light. Just like a person, for example, when my eyesight gets weaker, I need a powerful light to see. When my eyesight was strong, I didn't need such a big light to see. So Hasidus, Kabbalah Hasidus, is like a gigantic light that illuminates the world. But we needed that because our eyesight was getting weaker. 
When our eyesight was strong, I didn't, I didn't need, I didn't need all of these. The Arizal himself said an interesting thing. The Arizal himself said, the purpose of all of his Kabbalah was that he should daven like a two-year-old baby crying for his mother. And as all of this complicated stuff is to make me like a baby in the sense of just knowing there's Hashem. So what I'm saying is, the earlier generations had that, so they didn't need all of the stuff to bring them to that, to that situation. You see this in a lot of ways. You see this even in Nigla, even in Talmudic learning, uh, that uh, the, re- the newer generations make things much more complicated and intricate because uh, we're not interested unless it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Like, th- there was a notion of a greater simplicity. You didn't need everything to be so complicated. Okay, so uh, it's an interesting point. Say again, though. Like Right, that's right, that's like right. When you read a Pasuk, yeah. and like, a Jew who was at Harsina, I would read the Pasuk, and like, you know all this stuff that we now need to know from like, the Mishnah and the Right, 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 right. There was more of, a, of an intuitive hergish of the Mitzvah Sashem that didn't need uh, all of the explanations that, 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 that we need now. Okay. Um, how did I get onto this? I don't remember. What was I talking about? Oh, uh, abortion. Okay, okay. So, so the 40 days. Okay. okay. Now, the second tetra, which is 100% tetra, according to everybody, right? So the first tetra is less than 40 days. The second tetra is pikuach nefesh of the mother. This is very, very important. This is a dober pashat, that if the mother's life is in danger at any stage of the pregnancy, even if it's nine months, before the baby is born, the halacha is that we do terminate the pregnancy in order to save the life of the mother. This is called pikuach nefesh. Uh, now, although this halacha is pashut, this is an obvious halacha, nobody argues, analytically it actually is hard to understand because here's the problem. We know that pikuach nefesh sets aside most of the Torah, right? Uh, you violate Shabbos, you eat on Yom Kippur, uh, you eat treif, right? Everything is mutter for pikuach nefesh. But there are three things you can't do even to save your life. You can't worship idolatry, right? If someone comes to you and say, become a Christian or I'll kill you, you have to give up your life, right? That we know, avodah zara. The second thing is sexual promiscuity. Uh, although with women, there's an interesting distinction I'll mention in a moment. Um, the case is a man is told have intercourse with this uh, woman, or I'll kill you, the man must get himself killed before he commits this act. Now, the reason I mentioned a man is, and again, God forbid nobody should ever know this, but let's imagine, God forbid, uh, a woman is attacked by a rapist, whether she's married or not married. Is she obligated to get herself killed? I mean, let's say the rapist says, you know, be with me or I'll kill you. So it is interesting that although you would think, oh, it's gile arayos, sexual offenses, you have to give your life. But there is an opinion in the Gemara that says a woman does not have to give her life because the woman is considered to be passively violated as opposed to actively violating. And the proof is from Queen Esther because Esther was taken by force to Ahasuerus's palace, and she was actually with him. She, she had intercourse with him. 
In fact, she had a child from him, Darius II. Now the question is, what was Esther's heter? To be with Achishverosh, even if he would have killed her had she resisted, isn't she obligated to give up her life before she submits? So one answer the Gemara gives, it is an answer, there's different arguments, is that Esther was passive in this, and the halacha that you must give up your life for giloy arayos, giloy arayos means sexual offenses, is only active violation, like the man, not passive violation. So it's an interesting ha'ara that it's not obvious that a woman must give up her life in such a tragic, again, should, no one should ever, ever face this. All right, so there's Avodah Zorah, Gilei Rais, but the third one is... Is that where, like practical halacha? Do you follow that? Um, many opinions do follow that, yeah. You, you are allowed to follow that, yeah. Yeah. Now, the third one, though, is murder. And that's the one that's relevant here. You're not allowed to kill a person to save your life. What's the example? If a guy goes over to you and says, kill Ruvain, or I'll kill you, you must allow yourself to be killed before you kill another person. And the reason that's is... If you know that he's going to be killed anyway. Right, that we talked about. Right, If you know he's going to be killed anyway, yeah. But, but, but if they, he wouldn't be killed anyway, you have to g- give your life, because who says your life is any better than his life? Now, you can kill the guy that's threatening you. That's called Rodef, but you can't kill an innocent person. So here's the question. The question becomes... Is it Jew or... Say again? Uh, so that's an interesting machlokas. Some say you are allowed to kill an innocent non-Jew to save your life. Other people, I don't have to say it publicly. Other people say that you're not allowed to, but, but some do allow the killing of a non-Jew to save a Jew. Now, my question is simply this. I, I know we talked about the World Trade Center a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to repeat that. But my question is very simple. What is the heter of killing a fetus that's endangering the mother's life. Ah, one second. So the question becomes, aren't you killing one person to save another person? You're not allowed to do that. How are you allowed to kill one person to save another person? So, interestingly enough, there's a machlokas Rashi and the Rambam. What is the reason you can kill the fetus to save the mother? Rashi says an interesting thing. Rashi says, it's true you cannot kill one person to save another person, but the fetus is not yet a complete person until it's born. So even though you're normally not allowed to kill the fetus, abortion is normally a sin, but because the fetus is not a full person, the mother's life has priority over the fetus's life. That is how... Rashi understands it. The Rambam gives a different reason, and this is what you said. The Rambam says the fetus is a rodef because since the mother's life is being threatened by the fetus, the fetus becomes the the threatener, the pursuer, and you can kill the fetus as a rodef. Now, this is an interesting concept of rodef, is it not? Because when we think of Rodef, we think of a bad, evil person. We think of a terrorist as a Rodef, right? A terrorist is brandishing a gun. Well, we don't think a little baby that's in the mother's womb is a Rodef. There's no evil intention here. But the thing to understand is Rodef does not depend on 
malevolent intention. I'll give you an example of a born baby. Let's say a baby, it shouldn't happen this way, but a baby picks up a loaded gun, or a two-year-old picks up a loaded gun, and the baby is waving it around uh, in shul, on Shabbos, whatever, whatever it is. And the gun could, go, could come up, go off at any moment and kill people. Now, obviously, if we have a way of taking the gun away from the baby, you have to do that. You can't just, even a rodef, you can't kill a rodef if you could disable him another way. But if the only way I could get the baby away from that gun is by killing the baby, again, if that's the only way, the halacha is the baby is a rodef. You could be a, a rodef could be a two-year-old baby. Or, I'll tell you a story that they tell, I, I'm not sure if it's true, but they tell the story. During the Holocaust, imagine 10 Jews that are hiding in a bunker. They're hiding from the Germans. And one of the uh, Jews has a, is a mother that has her baby. And the baby starts crying as the Germans are looking. Now the story they tell is different. The story they tell is the mother put a blanket over the baby's mouth just so the baby would be quiet and the baby suffocated. And that's the story they tell. But I'm gonna make the story, and that's tragic, I'm gonna make the story even worse. Would halacha permit us to actually kill the baby? Kill the baby. Because if the baby's cries are going to alert the Germans to where we are. And the baby's cries are going to cause all of us to be killed. The baby is halachically a rodef. And a rodef you can kill, not to punish him. We're not punishing a baby. We're, we're doing it to prevent other people from dying. Rodef. So the Rambam's point is that just like a rodef can be a two-year-old brandishing a gun, or a rodef can be a little baby crying when the Nazis are looking for Jews. A rodef can also be an unborn baby who's endangering the life of the mother. So we see the Machlokas Rashi and the Rambam? Rashi says the hetzer is the baby is not a complete person. The language of Rashi is he's not a nefesh gamur. The Rambam says it is mutter because the baby is a rodef. Now, the big problem on the Rambam, I'm just gonna give you the question, I'm not gonna give you the answer, is that the Rambam then says that the heter to kill the baby to save the mother is only until the baby's head has began, begins to come out of the womb. Once the baby's head comes out of the womb, even if the mother is gonna die unless you uh, kill the baby, you're not allowed to kill the baby because the baby is now a person. Now, according to Rashi, that makes perfect sense. According to the Rambam, it makes no sense at all because like Rashi, the heter of abortion is only because it's not a nefesh gamor. So Mimela, once the head comes out, it's a nefesh gamor, that's treated as a birth. But like the Rambam, if the heter is because the baby is endangering the mother's life. And if the mother's gonna die, the mother's life can be uh, protected by killing a rodef. So the baby is still a rodef even after the head comes out. So according to the Rambam, why would there be a difference between the head coming out and the head not coming out? That only makes sense according to Rashi. Rashi, it makes sense. It does not make sense according to Rambam. So that's a, that's a very, very famous the Rambam Kasha. Comes. 
Yes, yes, he does. Yes, he does. So people are asking. There's a contradiction in the Rambam's ruling there. So this is a contradiction a, in the Rambam's ruling within the Rambam because the Rambam says the hetzer of killing the baby is because of rodef, mm-hmm. and then the Rambam says, but you can't do it once the baby put out his head. Oh, and and th- 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 those, those, that's a contradiction. Like Rashi, it's not a contradiction, but like the Rambam, it's a contradiction. So this is a very, very, very famous uh, question. Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, uh, Rav Chaim Brisker, uh, talks about it. Many of the commentaries on the Rambam try to grapple with how to understand this. But the bottom line is still halacha. Once the baby's head comes out, you cannot abort. Uh, in fact, it's not abortion. It will be called infanticide, meaning once the baby's head is out, now, in the United States, this actually goes by name. This is called partial birth abortion. They still call it abortion. Partial birth abortion, and you know, it's a whole complicated question. Is it legal? Is it not legal? And the like. But uh, in, under halacha, partial birth abortion is called murder, and it's not mature even to save the mother's life. Okay? All abortion can even be allowed for pikuach nefesh is allowed in the ninth month, but only before the baby's head has come out. And if it's a breech birth, right, a breech birth is feet first, then most of the body. In other words, birth can occur. In other words, when is a baby born? A baby is born when most of the top of its head has come out. It doesn't mean the whole face, but most of the top of the head. That's called crowning. Or in the case of a breech baby, when most of the baby's height has come out. So when one of those two things happen, that is called birth. Once it is called birth, then even if, God forbid, the mother is going to die unless I uh, uh, terminate the pregnancy, I cannot terminate the pregnancy because this is a born child and the heter of terminating the pregnancy is only when the child is not yet halachically born. Now, as I say, analytically, it's difficult to know why this should be the case, like the Rambam. Yes, because it's still a relative, but... Don't confuse uh, the analytical question with the halacha. The halacha is, once the baby is halachically born, there is no heter of abortion. Okay, so we've mentioned two heterim. Again, I know I'm reviewing, but it's worthwhile to review. One is pachos mimem yom, which is machlokas. The second is pikuach nefesh, in which there's no machlokas, but there's no machlokas regarding the reason. Rode for not nefesh, but the halacha is very clear. Now, the two more questions about pikuach nefesh. Number one, pikuach nefesh includes psychological trauma, very, very important. Pikuach nefesh is not only that the, uh, the mother's body is weak and the birth of the baby will kill her, but it can also include things like uh, trauma of rape or incest. Again, this is important. Halacha does not have a heter called rape or incest. Just because a baby was conceived with rape or incest is not a heter in and of itself. But if the trauma is so great that the woman might be suicidal, and that's possible, then we would look at it in terms of pikuach nefesh. That depends on the woman. Not every woman is going to go through the same level of trauma and, and, and the like. Uh, but nevertheless, there is a makam in which psychological stress can in fact uh, qualify as pikuach nefesh. That's a very important rule that pikuach nefesh does embrace psychological trauma as well as physical illness and the like. So that's one point. A second point is the issue of volunteerism. And that's an important point. 
let's say the woman has pikuach nefesh. If she gives birth to the baby, it's likely it'll kill her. Okay, that's fine. So abortion is permitted, the Seder. But is it mandatory? Let's say the woman says, and she might say this, I would rather have a child and die than to abort this child and live. So the interesting question is, when abortion is permitted, can a woman make the opposite choice and give up her life in order to have her child? And you can understand this. In fact, in many, many cases, this actually is a sensible decision because some of these tragic cases involve a woman that already has terminal cancer. In fact, the reason why the birth may kill her is because she has advanced cancer and the extra stress of the birth will kill her. So she says, listen, if you abort, I live six months. If you don't abort, I die right away, but I give birth to a baby. I mean, just, I mean, I know it's, it's, it's strange to address this in such cold logic, but, but a woman might very well say, I would rather die now and have a baby than, live for another, than, than lose my baby and live for another six months. So the question is, is she allowed to make that decision? So it's interesting, it's a very tragic decision, but it is interesting that uh, the postcom have allowed a woman to decline abortion if there's a possibility, a good possibility, there can be a live birth, even if it'll kill her, like Rachel Imenum, who of course died in, of course there they didn't, I guess they weren't exploring abortion, that wasn't the issue, but women die in childbirth, and a woman might legitimately decide that having a child is more important to me than, than just surviving. Especially, huh? Especially if it's in her last few months of life anyway, you know, so, uh, etc. So halacha does permit that type of volunteerism in the sense of uh, trying to save a life, okay? And the final issue of abortion, which we talked about briefly, again, I'm reviewing, is genetic abnormalities. Uh, it does, is abortion permitted for genetic abnormalities? So uh, here, Genetic abnormality is too broad of a term. You shouldn't even ask the Shiloh that way because genetic abnormalities can range from everything, from Tay-Sachs, which is uh, painful, debilitating, and 100% fatal, to Down syndrome, where somebody can live with a good quality of life for 50 or 60 years. So obviously, if it's a genetic, genetic abnormality like Down syndrome, Absolutely not. There is no heter of abortion whatsoever. Uh, the child can live a normal life. The child can be functioning. The child can be productive. And if a family is not able to raise a special needs child, uh, we have adoption and other options. Uh, so that's not a machlokas. Uh, nobody can abort for Down syndrome or the like. Uh, the big question is something like Tay-Sachs where the child will die uh, by the age of six or seven, and the child will suffer pain and suffering and blindness and loss of function. Even here, Rev. Moshe Feinstein said, abortion is not allowed, except within 40 days we might be, be lenient. Uh, I mentioned uh, the, the das yachid, das yachid means the individual decision of Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who's an isolated opinion, and he permits Tay-Sachs abortions up until the last three months, the last trimester, up until six months, uh, because of the pain that the child will go through. Uh, 
we do not follow that view. We, we actually uh, are very much against abortions. But now I'm going to mention something very, very important. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, getting, but getting an abortion within the first 40 days because of genetic abnormalities probably wouldn't happen. You can't do genetic, can you do genetic testing that early? Uh, for some things you can, some things you can. And in fact, I'll discuss, I'll discuss this. This is the next thing I want to talk about. And that is, let's go back to, if you remember, the reason we got to talking about abortion is because we were actually talking about in vitro fertilization. If you remember, we went off a lot, of, a lot of detours. Let's go back to in vitro fertilization a little bit. How does in vitro fertilization work again? So uh, the woman is given hormonal drugs that induce superovulation, meaning instead of one egg being released, many eggs are being released. She undergoes surgery. There is a surgery involved in which those eggs are taken. They're put in a laboratory dish called a Petri dish. And then the husband's sperm fertilizes the, uh, the egg, or hopefully fertilizes, put with the eggs in the dish. And then you have a fertilization. And assuming there is a fertilization, the eggs are then, or not the eggs, they're called embryos now, different name. They are transplanted into the woman's womb and the hope would be that nine months later she will have a baby, right? This is in vitro, meaning to say the fertilization does not occur in her body. The fertilization occurs in the, in the dish. Now, there is something to, that you need to know about in vitro fertilization. There is something that is called pre-implantation genetic screening. That's abbreviated PGS. Pre-implantation genetic screening is that before the embryos are implanted in the woman's body, they can be examined under a microscope for genetic abnormalities of any kind, Down syndrome, <coughs> Tay-Sachs, and in the secular world at least, through a pre-implantation genetic screening, the woman or the husband, the couple, the couple can decide that they don't want this fertilized egg to be implanted. They want it to be destroyed or whatever it would be. So here is the question I want to raise. I had told you that except for Rabbi Waldenberg, who's a Das Yochid, and even he only, only said it for Tay-Sachs, we do not allow abortion for genetic abnormalities. We don't allow it. But the question is, what if you're doing it through PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening, meaning you're not aborting after it's in the woman's body, but you're simply discarding the embryo before implantation, would halacha permit PGS? Now, obviously, if you mater abortion prior to 40 days for genetic abnormalities, then you're going to mater it for this because this is the, the, the development of the embryo is way less than 40 days. This is like a day, a day one day. But didn't you say when we talked about if, if multiple um, eggs got fertilized and there are multiple embryos, you're not. Well, that, that's what I'm, I'm talking about, and I'm revisiting that. That's what I'm actually talking about now. I'm kind of giving you some more information about that. So, again, some poskim say 
PGS is just an excuse for early abortion, meaning a PGS is an abortion. Uh, and if you're not allowed to abort, if it's in her body, you're not allowed to abort outside of her body uh, because they say it's just abortion, uh, can't do it, unless you match your pachos mimem yom, pachos mimem yom. So uh, this, is, this is pachos mimem yom, for sure it is. Right? You understand, it's less than 40 days old. But other posts can make a difference. Other posts can say, and this is very important, that the Easter of abortion only takes effect once the baby is in the environment in which, in the normal course of development, it'll be born as a human being. In other words, it's already implanted in the womb. Until it's implanted in the womb, it's not capable of becoming a human being. Because what's going to happen in in vitro is, uh, it'll grow for two weeks, but then it'll, it'll, it'll die. In other words, it, it, you're not going to get a bit, even if you make the dish bigger and bigger and bigger, it's the size of a bathtub, it's not going to turn into a baby if it's not in the woman's womb. So it'll, go, it'll go for two weeks and then go kaput. So this is an important qualification that some postgame do permit the destruction of an embryo that has not yet been implanted in a woman's womb because it is not in the environment that it could come to the birth of a human being. Now, according to that, that would actually mean that PGS would be okay. Uh, the question is, for everything? Could you do PGS for Down syndrome? You know, maybe not, but at least for major, major defects. For other things, it's still a little bit of a question. So now, let's go over well, okay, no, not yet. I have more things to talk about. Okay, so that's a new. So, so again, in terms of heterim, these are our heterim for abortion. Pachos mimem yom is machlokas. Pikuach nefesh of mother, for sure, is okay. Although we have machlokas Rambam and Rashi, why it's okay? In pikuach nefesh, psychological trauma can be life-threatening. And in Pikuach Nefesh, the mother could volunteer the other way to give her life. Okay? That's Pikuach Nefesh. Is that talking to her husband? Uh, well, technically, well, well, I mean, for sure she should talk to her husband, but technically it's her decision, not her husband's decision. I mean, uh, that, that's... She's going to leave the baby to... I understand, but uh, you know, if she's deciding to risk it for life, uh, this is her decision. I, I mean, of course, of course, she should talk to her husband. I'm not suggesting she shouldn't. But the husband, the husband would not have a veto if the husband says, "I want you to live, even if the baby dies." She has the right to say, "No, my decision is the other way." She, she does make the decision, decision on this. Okay, and then uh, the so, so uh, genetic abnormalities is normally not a heter except Rav Oldenburg uh, for the first six months by Tay-Sachs. And the final thing is PGS is a machlokas if genetic screening prior to implantation might be a justification uh, not, uh, not to implant. Right, so that's kind of what you need to know about, about abortion. Uh, however, there are a few other things that are even more complicated. Uh, for example, uh, what if... Uh, the baby has a condition where it is likely, during pregnancy, it is likely to be born stillborn. Let's say early in the pregnancy, the baby is still alive, 
but medical opinion is it will die in the womb. So some do permit an abortion. If it's hard for a woman to carry a, a baby that will die in her womb for several months, so some allow an abortion because the baby is going to die anyway. But again, that, those are difficult questions that one has to uh, ask a POSEC if they get involved. Okay, so that's kind of what you need to know basically about abortion, just to understand, and, 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 and again, know the difference between the Noahide code of abortion and the Torah laws of abortion, right? Uh, really, the laws are the same, except the punishment is different. That, that's really the only important difference, that the Noahide punishment for abortion is capital punishment when there was, when there was capital punishment, which there isn't today anyway, and the Jewish law for abortion is not a capital punishment. Uh, and like, okay, but in terms of all of the other laws, they are going to be the, uh, they are going to be the same. Okay, now this does raise interesting questions, peripheral questions, and that is, let's say you're a nurse, or you're an anesthesiologist, meaning you're a person who you know, gives people the gas that puts them to sleep. Are you allowed to assist a doctor in the performance of an abortion. I mean, let's say you have a doctor, he could be Jewish or not Jewish, and the doctor is doing abortions. And the abortions, let us assume, are against halacha. Halacha would not allow these abortions. Now, you're a nurse, you're not doing the abortion. You're just handing the doctor tools. Or if you're an anesthesiologist, you're just giving the woman the gas that puts her asleep. So that's an interesting shayla. Are you allowed to do those things if the abortion itself is usher, even though you're not doing the abortion itself? So generally speaking, there's gonna be a real problem there because you're not allowed to assist people in the commission of a sin. So even if you're not doing the sin directly, you are called an assister in an Avera. So uh, there may have to be uh, ways of getting yourself out of it. Unless, of course, the woman's life is in danger, in which case the abortion is mutter, and then you're allowed to, to assist. Okay, all right. So now, let's go back uh, to uh, in vitro fertilization, because that really was our main topic. So uh, nurses are allowed no. to assist if it's a halakhically okay abortion? Say again? The conclusion is that a nurse could only assist if it's a halakhically that, okay that, 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 Yes, basically that, that would be the case, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, so if you're a religious nurse, and you work in a hospital that does abortions, you should request not to be called into duty for abortions. Now, the hospital will probably listen to you, and not, not because they care about Jews, but because they care about Catholics, uh, because, because a Catholic nurse will make the same request, and uh, they'll honor that request, so that allows the Jew to make the request. So it's not that they love the Torah, but you know, since Catholics get it, so Jews get it as well. So a, a nurse should request not to help during an abortion or the like. Okay? Alrighty. Alrighty. So now, let's go back uh, to... In, uh, I'm sorry. Can a nurse learn it in school? Learn it in school? Like, I'm pretty sure it's part of... Uh, so, so I'm not sure what you mean by learning it. Do you mean observe, watch it? Because a nurse has to learn what she has to do in all kinds of situations. No, no, of course she should. No, no, of course. There's no question that uh, whether it's a doctor or a nurse, uh, they should learn how to do abortions or what to do during abortions simply because there will be abortions that are life-threatening 
that there's a mitzvah to do. So learning the knowledge, learning the technique is, is perfectly fine. Uh, the problem is, if you have to learn the technique by doing an abortion, that's not a, then you have a problem. But yeah, uh, since some abortions are pikuach nefesh, so it's perfectly right for a nurse to know uh, what, what to do during those situations. Okay? All right. So now, we've been talking about in vitro fertilization, and uh, we were talking about what we call plain vanilla. Plain vanilla simply means Husband sperm, wife wife's egg, and wife carries the baby. Plain vanilla. Nobody else is involved. But let's talk about some variations of things. Now, we did talk about sperm donors already, so I'm not going to talk about sperm donors, but now we're going to talk about donation on the part of the woman. Some women who want to get pregnant are not able to ovulate anymore. Maybe they have a uterus, but their ovaries were removed, or whatever, or they're not ovulating properly. So there is an industry, just as there are sperm donors, there is an industry of women who are called egg donors. Egg donors, meaning there are women who donate their eggs so that other, right, for an in vitro fertilization. So let's imagine this scenario. Husband and wife are Orthodox Jews. They're religious Jews. They want to have a child, uh, but wife does not ovulate properly. So the doctor proposes, let's have an in vitro fertilization with a donated egg from an egg donor. Right? Does halacha allow fertilization through a donated egg? So here, there are a few things here. Uh, number one, we know that Judaism is defined by the mother. Everybody knows that, right? That's the famous principle called matrilineal descent, that Judaism is defined by who your mother is. If your mother is Jewish, you're a Jew. If your mother is not Jewish, you're, you're not a Jew. Meaning there actually is no such thing in Judaism as half Jew. In the secular world, people call them, I'm half Jewish. No? No such thing as half Jewish. You're either all Jewish or you're zero Jewish. Uh, if your mother is Jewish, you are 100% Jewish. If your mother is not Jewish, you are 100% not Jewish. Right? There's no half Jew. So, everything's based on the mother. But here's the big question. Who is the mother when you have a donated egg that is carried by another woman. Meaning, let's imagine for a moment that the egg donor is not Jewish. Okay, let's imagine the egg donor is not Jewish. So, non-Jewish woman donates egg, fertilized by Jewish man's sperm, and the fertilized egg is transplanted into his wife's uterus, and nine months later, his wife gives birth to a boy. Or a girl, or a girl. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be a boy. Now here's the question. Who is the halachic mother? Well, that's the question. Who is the halachic mother of this baby? Is it the birth mother that carried the baby for nine months? Or is it the egg donor who contributed the genetic identity 
half of the genetic identity, the chromosomes, to this baby. Now that's a tremendously important question because if the egg donor is the mother, the kid is a guy who has to be converted. If the birth mother is the mother, the child is a Jew who doesn't have to be converted. Now, let me give you another case where it's the same question but in reverse. I gave you a case where the wife can carry a baby, but she's not ovulating, so we have to use an egg donor. Okay? That was the first case I gave you. I'll give you an opposite case. Let's say you have a case where the woman does ovulate, but she cannot carry the baby for sickness or whatever it is. So here, modern technology invented another thing called a surrogate mother, called the gestational surrogate. Now, the way that works is husband's sperm fertilizes his wife's egg in vitro. So it's husband's sperm and it's wife's egg. And assuming it is fertilized, the embryo is then transferred to a woman who volunteers to carry the embryo for nine months. And that woman is called what? A gestational surrogate. Gestation just means carries for the pregnant. A gestational, in Hebrew, there's actually a colorful term in Hebrew. In Hebrew, a gestational, a gestational surrogate is called aim pundakot. That actually mean, means an innkeeper mother. She's like the innkeeper. She's <laughs> giving the baby lodging for nine months. Aim pundakait. Pundakait is an innkeeper. Okay? Uh, and then she gives the baby over to adoption, or to, the, to the original couple. By the way, that's very dangerous because sometimes she gets attached to the baby and doesn't turn it over and there's all sorts of legal problems. But if it works the way it's supposed to work, that's what happens. So again, do you understand? You have the same question. If the gestational surrogate is not the mother, I'm sorry, if the gestational surrogate is not Jewish, who is the mother? Do I look at the one that carried the baby for nine months? In which case, in this case, the baby would be a guy who needs conversion? Or do I look at the genetic contributor, in, in which case the baby is Jewish? In other words, the point I'm making is, egg donation and gestational surrogacy are opposite cases, but they create the same problem. Meaning, who is the mother? The birth mother or the genetic mother whose chromosomes are in that embryo? And this is very important because this will determine if the child is Jewish or the child needs a conversion. Because the fact that the father, we know who the father is, the father is the guy who's the sperm. That's great, but just because you know who the father is, that has no relevance as to the Jewish identity of the child. Yeah, the, like, the, Somebody who carries a baby, like from another egg, yes. doesn't give her DNA to the baby, right? Does not, that's correct. So, so the baby the doesn't have her DNA. That's correct, that's correct, that's correct. So. If we were, so, so let's look at this just from logic because it's very hard to find proofs, although there are some Talmudic proofs. 
One argument would be that we should favor the DNA contributor, which is the egg, egg, source of the egg, because the baby's characteristics, the baby's personality, the baby's nature, the baby's physical constitution is based on the DNA, and the birth mother is simply an incubator. And theoretically, you could have an artificial incubator, right? There's no, right? So if we were to talk about what gives the baby the uniqueness, we might favor the egg, the genetic donor, the egg donor, which is the genetic donor. But on the other hand, we do have a teaching. Remember, this is the, actually the very beginning of the Sefer of Tanya. Uh, that's why it's called Tanya. Tanya means we learned in Abraisa, and, and the Alter Rebbe is quoting a teaching. Remember the famous teaching, before a baby is born, Mashbian Oso, he must swear, uh, we make him swear to be a tzaddik and not a Russia. And even if the whole world says, you know, you are a Russia, you know, you shouldn't uh, take that in. Now, that is the middle of a quote. There is something before that, which the Alter Rebbe doesn't, doesn't quote. What is before that? That's a, you know this teaching as well, that it says, in the, in the womb of the mother, a malach teaches the baby the whole Torah. And then when the baby is born, the malach hits the baby on the lip and the baby forgets the Torah. And you've heard that, that before we're born, we learn the whole Torah in our mother's womb. Now, interesting question. What's the purpose of learning the whole Torah before we're born if we forget it anyway? It's taken away from us. Like what, what's, what's, the, what's the purpose of it? The answer is very simple. Hashem wants to imprint his Torah on our godly soul. In other words, there's a concept that something is put into your neshama, so even if your mind forgets it, it's still in there. Just like they say, I haven't tested this, but they say you can never forget, you can never forget how to ride a bicycle. That if, once you know how to ride a bicycle, even if you haven't rid a bicycle, ridden a bicycle for 100 years, kind of like me, you could do it again. So, Torah is that way as well. It's part of you. So even if you forget it, and your job is to relearn it, but it'll always be something that's inside of you. Okay. So it turns out like this, spiritually, the nine months of the womb gives me my spiritual essence. So that would be an argument that would say, we have to look at who carried you for nine months as opposed to the genetics. Maybe genetics are less important because if you were in the womb of a guy, maybe you didn't learn, you know, you didn't learn the Torah with the Malach. So you understand the question. And, the, and remember, it's important to keep in mind that the question is both, the question is both egg donation and gestational surrogacy, because it's the same question. It's just in reverse. In the case of egg donation, the Jewish wife carried the baby and the DNA is from a guy. In the case of surrogacy, the Jewish woman is the DNA and a guy carried the baby, but it's the same question. Who is the mother in those types of cases? Is, yeah. Isn't the neshama drawn down at the time of conception? Isn't there like a... There is a concept that the neshama is drawn down at the time of conception, uh, but then it needs to be filled. It's kind of the neshama is it's the essence and it's the potential. 
Yeah, and you, so you're saying that, that's a favor, that's an argument in favor of the DNA, mm -hmm. the conception. Well, uh, no, 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 but, but I'll tell you, but, 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 that's true, but see, that's not going to help you very much. One second. Uh, the conception occurred here in vitro, right? It didn't occur yeah. by relations. So that's a little bit of a problem because, in fact, there's an interesting question there because the Alter Rebbe says from the Zohar that the nature of the neshama that's drawn down depends on the intention, and this is a good question, the intention of the husband and the wife at the time of their unification. So I'll ask you a very simple question. How does that work with an in vitro fertilization, where the egg was taken from the wife under surgery, under anesthesia, and the husband gave sperm through, I mean, do we look at separate things? That the wife has a kavana, it's not the same time. The wife has a kavana when they take the egg, or, 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 and the husband has a kavana when they take the sperm, or they have to have kavana at the point in the laboratory when the egg and the sperm get together. They don't, they don't know when that is, really. That's a good question, I have to think about it. Exactly. How do you determine the kavanos? These are called the kavanos of chibor. What are the kavanos at the time that they're together that draws down the neshama? That's a good question. I think about it. Uh, how do you how do you get those kavanos in an in vitro fertilization? Even if it's plain vanilla, even if it's husband's sperm and wife's egg, how do you get the kavanos in those situations? Yeah, but let me think about this. It's, it's a very good, very good horror. So let me tell you that some want to bring a, a proof to all of this from a medrash that we, uh, you, we learned a few weeks ago. Do you remember this medrash that says that after Yosef was born and Leah was pregnant and Rachel was pregnant, um, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, Rachel was pregnant. So originally Rachel was carrying, Rachel was gonna give birth to a girl, Dina. Yeah. And the problem basically was and Leah was going to give birth to a boy. But Leah prayed that she should give birth to a girl because if Leah were to give birth to a boy, I'm sorry, this is before Yosef was born, uh, there would only be one tribe left for Leah, left for Rachel. In other words, uh, and that, that would make Rachel worse than the maidservants because the maidservants had two boys each, two tribes. And Leah knew there would be 12 tribes. So if she would give birth to Yosef, Yosef, that was the pregnancy of Yosef, if Leah would have given birth to Yosef, that would have left Rachel with only one tribe. Rachel was pregnant with a girl at this time? So that's what you say. Rachel was pregnant and Leah was pregnant. But Rachel was pregnant with a boy. I'm sorry, Leah was pregnant with a boy. Rachel was pregnant with a girl and the boy would have been the 11th tribe. So Ra Leah did not want Rachel to be worse than the maidservants. So Rachel, I'm sorry, Leah prayed that the boy in her should be changed to a girl and the girl in Rachel should be changed to a boy and that is how Rachel gave birth to Yosef. This is a medrash that Rashi brings. That's why it says, uh, right, so Leah gave birth to Dina and Rachel gave birth to Yosef. That's why it says by Dina, by all the other births, it says she conceived and she gave birth. By Dina, it only says she gave birth because she did not conceive a girl, Dina. Now, 
How do we understand? This was a miracle, obviously. But how do we understand the miracle? So the way Rashi understands the miracle, it simply means the girl became a boy and the boy became a girl. Meaning, Leah is carrying a girl, I'm sorry, Leah is carrying a boy, God made it into a girl, Dina. Rachel is carrying a girl, God made it into a boy, Yosef. That's how Rashi understands it. God simply changed the girl into a boy and changed the boy into a girl. That's Rashi's understanding of the Medrash. But we have a Targum, Yonasan ben Uziel. Yonasan ben Uziel was a disciple of Hillel. He was the greatest of the Talmudim of Hillel. He was so great, it says, that when a bird flew over his learning, the bird would get burnt with the fire of Kedusha. Um, maybe you've heard of Yonas ben Uziel because uh, he's, he's buried in a very isolated place near Tzfat mm -hmm. called Amuka. Amuka is a very deep valley and it is said that that's a very good place to pray for a shidduch. Amuka. Uh, what often happens is that uh, either boys or girls they leave their sitter there by accident <laughs> uh, with their name and address and phone number. <laughs> and uh, a boy who wants to fulfill the mitzvah of Hashava Saveda, returning lost articles, will call up the girl to give back her sitter and uh, marriages get made <laughs> that particular way. So be sure if you leave your sitter behind that your phone number is, is there or whatever. whatever. <laughs> or at least the phone number of a shadchan is probably better. <laughs> better, way, better way to do it. So Targum Yainasen says differently than Rashi. Listen to Targum Yainasen. Targum Yainasen does not say the boy became a girl and the girl became a boy. The miracle was Hashem switched the babies. In other words, Rachel was carrying a girl and Leah was carrying a boy, Hashem took the girl out of Leah's body and put it in, I'm sorry, took the girl out of Rachel's body and put it into Leah's body and took the boy out of Leah's body. See, different than Rashi. The boy and the girl didn't change. They were switched. Wait a second. According to Targum Yainasen, it turns out that Dina who was born from Leah, was genetically Rachel's daughter. And Yosef, who was born from Rachel, was genetically Leah's son. Each one was a surrogate, surrogate for the other one. Now, since throughout the Torah, Dina is described as the daughter of Leah, and Yosef is described as the daughter of, as the son of Rachel. What do you see? That you don't look at DNA, you look at birth mother. So from this fascinating medrash, some want to prove the halacha that in the case of egg donation from a non-Jew, the child will be Jewish because it was carried by a Jewish mother. And in the case of surrogacy, where the child is genetically Jewish, he would be non-Jewish because he was carried by a non-Jewish surrogate. You see there the proof. Now, but you understand, it's only a proof the way Targum Yonason understands the miracle, that the babies were switched. 
The way Rashi understands the miracle, it's not a proof because nobody was switched. The boy that Leah was carrying became a girl, but Leah is the genetic contributor there. So it's only a proof like the way Targum Yonasan understands the miracle. It is not a proof the way Rashi understands the miracle. So we can't really say we have a definite proof because it depends on which interpretation you would accept. Anyway, the post can say that you cannot prove halacha on the basis of midrashim. That's an interesting thing because the midrashim are not texts that are teaching you halacha. They have other points and other things they're trying to tell you. So we don't really paskin on the basis of midrashim. But still, it's very fascinating that we could bring a proof to a modern question from a medrash like, like this. Okay? Alrighty, so maybe we'll stop a little early for Hanukkah. And I wish you all a wonderful, wonderful Hanukkah. It should be a time Thank of light. You. And uh, the word Hanukkah, of course, means dedication, dedication of the Beis HaMikdash. But the Svarim tell us that each of us has to make a Mikdash for Hashem in our hearts. So when we are dedicating the Beis HaMikdash, we're dedicating the Beis HaMikdash within us, that it should be a place where Hashem can, can always dwell. So take care, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.